BakerBots LLP provides podcasts for educational purposes only. They are not legal advice. This communication may constitute attorney advertising. Welcome to the Environmental Evolutions Podcast, where we explore the changing landscape of environmental law and policy. I'm your host, Megan Burge, joining you from Washington, D.C. In today's episode, we're going to do something a little different. Okay, a lot different. We are going to showcase another podcast called All Things Chemical. It recently featured my partner, Alex Dunn, in an episode exploring everything from changes in EPA's approach to the Toxic Substances Control Act, TSCA, to the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, known as FIFRA, and what's coming next in this arena. For anyone who doesn't know, Alex is the former Assistant Administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention, and, more importantly, a repeat guest here on Environmental Evolutions. We'll be back with new Environmental Evolutions podcasts soon. In the meantime, enjoy this episode of All Things Chemical. I'm Megan Birch. Thanks for spending time with me. Hello, and welcome to All Things Chemical, a podcast produced by Berkison and Campbell, a Washington, D.C. law firm focusing on chemical law, business, and litigation matters. I'm Lynn Bergeson. This week, I was delighted to visit again with Alexandra Dunn, now a partner with Baker Botts and previously immediate past assistant administrator of EPA's Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention. As assistant administrator, Alex was respected and well-liked by a diversity of industrial and agrochemical stakeholders, revered by her immediate staff, and hugely popular as an EPA senior leader. Alex led the Toxics Office at a pivotal time in EPA's implementation of revisions to the Toxic Substances Control Act, and Alex worked tirelessly to meet the many deadlines imposed under Lautenberg. We discuss Alex's transition back into the private practice of law, get a sense of the issues on which Alex is focusing now that she is back in private practice, and reflect on current EPA policies under TSCA and FIFRA, to understand what has changed since Alex left EPA. Now, here's my conversation with Alex Dunn. Alex, I am just so thrilled that you're back in the studio. I was looking forward to this more than you could possibly imagine. Well, Lynn, thanks for having me back. I always enjoy doing your podcast and now that podcasts are, you know, the hippest thing ever, you know, <laughs> kudos to you for for having all things chemical rolling for so long and, you know, I'm really glad to be here with you this morning. Super. Tell our listeners a little bit about how the transition to private practice has gone so far and, you know, maybe give our listeners a sense of what you're spending time on. Well, I joined a law firm called Baker Botts about three weeks after leaving the administration. And I have to say it has been a relatively smooth transition other than starting a job virtually and largely holding Mm -hmm. that job virtually since 
um, since I began, but I'm not the first person to do that. Really enjoy private practice. Uh, Many of my years, as you know, Lynn, were policy-oriented and not necessarily purely legal. So it Mm -hmm. is fun to be back in a place where I can bring the the detailed legal analysis to my love of policy. Uh, So what I'm spending time with are things that I've always put a lot of priority on in my career. Mm -hmm. I've with the the Biden administration's focus on environmental justice, it's great timing for being in private practice where companies, some are very familiar with environmental justice concepts and have them well integrated into their operational frameworks. Other companies feel like they want to learn more. They might be a little rusty on what environmental justice means. So I've worked with a team of colleagues to develop a framework for environmental justice integration at Mm -hmm. companies of all sizes. And that's been uh, a really sort of a labor of love and a a great project. Um, And all of that information is, is on our uh, BakerBots website, and it's we're putting a lot of content out that that's for anyone to to use, much like your firm does, Lynn. And I, I think that's a, a service that we can all offer um, is to share knowledge, thought leadership with the, mm-hmm. the legal and regulatory community. And then I've also been working on, yes, I, I have a few matters that involve you know chemicals, uh, a few matters that involve pesticides working on compliance counseling. And then I think we'll talk later about PFAS, which is an area where I'm spending a good bit of time. Well, I hope our listeners picked up on the reference to the content regarding a environmental justice framework that I'm going to take a look at that, Alex, because I know some of our clients have struggled with kind of contextualizing environmental justice, compliance, oversight, how to move strategically into an area that is, you know, I don't want to say ill-defined, but growing in definition and impact uh, on the private sector. So w- maybe you want to just give a shout out to the, your website uh, to make sure listeners are directed accordingly. Well, sure. I didn't want to overly, you know, plug it, but absolutely, uh, folks should check it out. It's it's bakerbots.com backslash Acellus, A-C-E-L-A-S. And those are the six letters of our analytical framework for Mm -hmm. integrating environmental justice. There's also three webinars on exactly what you said. You know, what what is 2022 environmental justice as compared to perhaps environmental justice five or 10 years ago? The The field has grown to include climate justice, economic justice, uh, justice in in the truest sense of the word, not just with regard to pollution impacts, but with the entire life of a community. And um, also giving a lot of recognition to the lived experience of a community. So not just assuming that one understands what living in a community where there may be industrial activity means, but hearing firsthand from the people who have lived there for perhaps uh, many generations and and hearing their take as as important and frankly, the most important source of information that should go into the input. So 
It's it's a very, as you said, it's an evolving field and um, not necessarily something that everyone's really comfortable with because it does mm -hmm. touch on difficult issues like race and economics and socioeconomics and it, it it can it can bring up some difficult feelings, but um, absolutely, our toolkit I think gives a, a roadmap. At least you know you're on the right track in having those conversations. Well, thank you and your colleagues for making that important work available. So I'm going to look at it, and thank you for the shout out on the on the website address. Sure thing. Well, you know, over the past year, just a whole lot has happened under the you know general heading of Lautenberg implementation an area that you are very familiar with given your role as assistant administrator. Alex, what would you highlight as some of the most significant policy shifts in that area? Well, I do have to say first, you know, kudos to the whole team that's over there with uh, Dr. Friedhoff and her leadership team. So certainly, you know, it's easy to sit outside and watch and wonder, but then again, People did that when I was there too. So, so I I offer these thoughts, you know, with full recognition that folks are working hard every day, mm -hmm. and and the career staff are are amazing. I I I don't think I hear an address by anyone in an appointed position that doesn't really call out the work of the career staff. But yes, you're right. There have been some, I would say, even seismic policy shifts, and you know, they weren't surprising in many ways because. While I was at EPA and the last administration was implementing the, the TSCA amendments of 2016, we got lots of mail and letters and comments about the policy choices that were being made and the alternatives were being offered. And, and now we see these alternatives really coming into play. I mean, the first one that is you know, in, intriguing and and again, not surprising is this whole chemical approach. You know, did did Tosca's conditions of use analytical approach anticipate what the last administration did, which was take a chemical, look at its say nineteen or twenty different uses, and find some of those uses to not pose an unreasonable risk and some of them to in fact pose an unreasonable risk. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the Biden team has decided to pick up the chemical, so to speak, and just look at it and say, this chemical in and of itself is inherently poses an unreasonable risk or does not. Other than you know the, the lowest priority chemicals, I'm not sure one could pick up a chemical and, and find absolutely no risks particularly with another one of the policy shifts, which is, you know, whether workers are wearing protective, uh, personal protective equipment when, when interacting with the chemical. That, that's been sort of a hot policy topic. And in the last administration, we found for a variety of reasons that, that it was reasonable to assume that workplaces were, because of workplace law and worker mm -hmm. protection law and OSHA, were supplying their workers with appropriate PPE. And when we evaluated a chemical as a team with the scientists, uh, it was assumed that the worker would be wearing gloves, perhaps, um, if the chemical was a dermal irritant or eye protection or mm -hmm. even a respirator. In addition to the whole chemical approach, another sort of policy change has been to assume that workers are not wearing 
uh, protective equipment. And, and in that case, we're going to have a chemicals posing you know, a number of unreasonable risks because certainly many of them are, in fact, dermal irritants or eye irritants or you shouldn't inhale them. And so if you're not wearing protective equipment, they're going to pose risks. And, and then all of those two assumptions, I think, together are kind of resulting in the redoing of so many of the, the first 10 risk evaluations. And, and that has really left me a little bit um, surprised at, at how significantly it has um, affected the timing of the risk management mm-hmm. rulemaking process. Congress gave a, a timed roadmap in TSCA, and it, it, it is aggressive, as we all know. And, you know, one year from final risk evaluation, the agency was to propose a risk management rule. And, um, you know, we still don't have any. Um, and the risk, the, the risk evaluations are sort of being redone. I believe one has been redone so far. So those policy choices are definitely affecting the whole workload. Um, and and I, I wonder too, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about morale and, you know, we all get up and go to do our jobs every day, but um, redoing a lot of work, I think can have its morale effect too. Sure. Uh, so I, I, ju- I just wonder, you know, how, how, how the vibe is, because uh, these are some important policy choices and certainly within the, the purview of, of the administration to make. But it does have an effect on on the team. And, and Lynn, maybe the last thing I'll say is, you know, the the first ten risk evaluations agreed they were done under a lot of time pressure. But mm-hmm. every one of them was peer reviewed, was fully mm-hmm. peer reviewed by by the Science Advisory Committee on Chemicals. So, you know, I I still believe, that, you know, that the scientists who worked on them stand behind that initial work. So. You know, in going back in and kind of recutting and recarving and reanalyzing, you know, I hope that the time and effort, I guess, really gives us a valuable outcome, a changed outcome. Um, or is it just really kind of rewriting the way you get from A to Z, you know, mm-hmm. with multiple different pathways? Is the outcome going to change? I don't think we really know that yet. Lots of good points, Alex. I know. I share your view, and many, many lawyers in the Tosca space do, you know, question what the whole chemical approach means. Is it countenanced under Lautenberg? And with regard to the risk evaluations and assumptions regarding PPE, whether the non-use of PPE is a reasonable, reasonably foreseeable event with regard to chemical exposures in the workplace— you know, reasonable people can disagree and are disagreeing. So I'm yeah. guessing some of those issues will be sorted out judicially because they continue to be big hot button issues right now, both in Tosca Section 6 and, you know, how much work we do under Tosca Section 5 because it's having a very, very chilling effect on the commercialization of, of new chemicals for sure. That is a great point. Well, in, in that regard, I mean, now that you've you have just a, a storied Really, really extraordinary career, Alex, and I say that with all sincerity because you've you've been in every kind of sector, you know, academia and the NGO and government service and private practice of law and trade association. What do you tell your clients about what to expect and how 
best to approach to achieve, you know, the optimum outcome, the new administration, when advocating a position? I mean, you, you've been on both sides of that discussion. So w- what do you tell your clients? Well, that's that's a great question. You know, what I tell the clients I'm working with is is learned from what I saw inside the agency when when there was a high degree of frustration and sort of what was the root cause of that frustration. And so often the root cause of a company, you know, elevating to the administrator's office or to the AA um, of OCSPP, you know, in sort of a, a letter saying, you've had my application for an undue amount of time, we haven't heard from anyone, you know, it really often got down to sort of this breakdown in communication. Mm-hmm. A lot of work with EPA, as you know, Lynn, it's very transactional. Something has to be filed, something has to be uploaded, and then people kind of go on with their other responsibilities. Right. And what happens is that things can languish, but really it's about following up on that submission, finding out who truly the the living beating human person who has been assigned to your case you know who is that person and that person you know has a plate of work and you know your case is you know the next one in the queue and they don't have any reason to know sort of who you are what you need what your drivers may be timing wise what your plans are for going to market necessarily I think there's a general assumption that very few chemicals are completed within the 90 and even the 180 Mm -hmm. days. Uh, So what I tell people is find out who is working on your case, contact them, introduce yourself to them. I have found that EPA staff are incredibly responsive, uh, particularly to emails, maybe more responsive to emails than voicemails with with sort of the, the virtual work. But notwithstanding, I do advise an email communication because it's in writing. It's a little bit easier to follow the breadcrumbs when you've got six or seven months or even a year of communications back and forth. It's so much better when there weren't three or four really important voicemails exchanged that nobody exactly remembers what communication was in them. Um, So put things in writing, meet the people, Talk to the staff about your why, you know, why you are hopeful that things can be done timely. Listen to them about their constraints. Find out what gaps they foresee. The staff can be uh, very uh, open about where they think the the bottlenecks will be in the process, if it's going to be an eco-risk assessment or in the human health assessment piece, and ask, is there something that that we can provide to help the staff Mm -hmm. and then just stay in communication. That's really what I tell people. And if you do need to elevate, if if there is a difference of opinion, a true difference of opinion that that you really believe is a scientific difference of opinion or a policy difference of opinion, if after a period of time you feel like you need to elevate it to the person's manager, let them know and, and just say, hey, I, we've reached a place here where we, we, I, we're not making a lot of progress. I'd really like to involve your branch chief or your division director 
And that's part of the process. But I do think letting people know that it's it's just part of the process. There's no bad feelings, but you feel that you need to speak to, you know, a larger group of people. Um, mm-hmm. That's okay to do. But that heads up is super important, <laughs> as, as we know, to just uh, make sure that the individual with whom you are dealing doesn't feel undermined or uh, sabotaged by having yeah. a, you know a broader audience kind of invited into the problem solving process. So great advice, Alex. Thank you for that. Well, and Lynn, you know too. The first thing that the higher um, higher in the organizational structure um, person will ask is they'll turn to the staff member on the case exactly. and ask to be briefed. <laughs> so, right. Right. you know, recognizing <laughs> that, you know, we're all in the same tent, um, mm-hmm. I think can can really help. I know one of the issues that many of our clients are struggling with and derivative of a problem that we, we know well, and that is, you know, the Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention is definitely under-resourced. And Dr. Friedhoff has been asking for, understandably so, given the, the workload, many more you know, full-time employee and equivalents than perhaps it now has. As, as immediate past assistant administrator for that uh, office, what advice are you sharing with your clients uh, to address you know, the you know, many bottlenecks that they are experiencing in virtually all areas uh, administered by the OCSPP? especially in the new chemicals area. You know, you just noted that no one expects the 90 days or even the 180 days these days. It's generally well in excess of 180 days to perfect a new chemical approval or exemption. But besides the be patient, we're we're at where we're at. Are there any specific strategies you are recommending your clients pursue? You know, I will say with the omnibus being signed very recently, it, it is unfortunate that the the budget for the agency didn't get the the bump that um, the Biden Harris budget would have given it. But notwithstanding, you know, when we had um, when I left in January 2021, a true list of every vacant position in the Office of Pollution Prevention and Toxics, and a very aggressive plan to fill those positions within nine months. And that was optimistic, but, you know, it's like setting a really big goal and then just pushing towards it. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, there's attrition that comes in in the interim. So you, you, you lose, you know, you hire two and lose three. I mean, that does happen, but with a focus on hiring, there, there is the possibility under the existing budget to, you know, baseline staff the Office of Pollution Prevention and Toxics, and, and, and the putting the real focus on it is not just Dr. Friedhoff and her office getting those positions posted, but it's truly across the whole agency, the the HR office recognizing that this office OPPT is is you know critically short on staff. Hiring the type of experts that are needed in that office is, is you know, challenging, particularly with competition mm-hmm. from the private sector. But you know, when when uh, Administrator Wheeler asked us to establish uh, a branch of of OPP 
T and OPP uh, down in Research Triangle Park with the idea that perhaps that that geographic location would be attractive to some scientists who were not interested in the DC area. Um, we were able to bring on 30, 30 new PhD. They all had a PhD, one had a master's, and I, I think there was one bachelor's in, in physics, which is, is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, so uh, 30 really highly qualified individuals were hired in an aggressive time period. So, you know, I, I remain on the sidelines cheering the, the HR hiring process. It, it takes a long time to onboard a federal employee. And you, you almost, I used to say, you have to be like the military in constant recruiting mode. Mm -hmm. you're, you're always looking for, for that battalion you and and filling them up you know every single day so what i tell my clients with regard to the bottlenecks that come from the the staffing is is patience mm -hmm. certainly as i'm sure you do but also um be realistic about your time frame if, if there's a chemical approval that's really critical to your business plan you know build in you know unfortunately a year maybe maybe 15 months to get to approval or exemption, as you said. Communicate, as I said earlier, try to make sure your submission's complete, mm -hmm. um, anticipate gaps, and then the, the consent order process, because of the assumptions around PPE, almost every new chemical authorization is going to come with an order. And that's just another step in the process that unfortunately will make it take a, a bit longer. So. I would guess I'd say buckle in for a bit of a longer ride, but, but calculate okay. that longer ride in your business plan. And if you do, it will be less devastating to your business when things take inevitably longer than the statute says. That's great advice, Alex, because I, I know that the law says 90 days and for years and years and years, that was a bit of a reliable metric although it was never a hard and fast truism, even under, you know, pre-Laudenberg. But managing expectations, <laughs> it, you know, the, the, the folks that actually prepare the PMNs and get them in, you know, they are generally answerable to others within their entities. So it's, you're, you're spot on with, you know, a year, a year and a half just to be on the safe side. If you come in under that, you know, you're a hero, Right, but yeah, you're not going to come in under 90 days. Uh, that's just that, that those days are are gone. Well, let's pivot to what you mentioned a, a little bit ago, Alex, and that is the, the work that you're doing in in PFAS related issues. I have enjoyed and witnessed your your many presentations over the past year in an area that's very hot, you know, across the board in the environmental and chemical space. What, in your view, are the key issues that our listeners ought to be uh, watching for, listening for, with regard to EP's focus on PFAS? Yeah, absolutely. And and Lynn, you and I gave a talk together recently to the American Law Institute, where we got to sort of go back and forth and chat about PFAS. So I I know what I'm about to say is of no surprise to to you, but but I'm really glad to talk about it. So. Uh, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances or PFAS, they they are ubiquitous. They've been found. Uh, when I was at EPA, we used to say they've been found in the Arctic. You know, so they they mm -hmm. move, they go everywhere. And so what what I encourage your listeners to do, and what I'm telling clients of mine, is to really 
reflect on what I call your relationship with a PFAS chemical. So if you're, for example, a refinery, did you and do you still have on site um, aqueous film forming foam concentrates or AFFF foams, which contain uh, PFOA and PFOS? Mm-hmm. How did you use them? What type of uh, firefighting activities or drill activities did, did you undertake at your facility? And the fact that you undertook those activities is not the issue. The issue is, did that foam uh, mixed with water leave your site somehow impact groundwater, um, impact soil? So it's, it's you know, again, getting your relationship with PFAS um, documented and understood for a lot of facilities. This means that they are in response to, say, state requests. The state of New Jersey, the state of California are asking for industry sectors like petroleum refining, wastewater treatment, and others, airports, to do this type of historical analysis and provide the facts, so to speak, to the state. And that information is also being put on um, publicly available databases. So the information could, you know, is very transparent, could be used by by groups that are concerned about water impacts um, in a potential even, you know, citizen suit or complaint. So recognize that documenting your relationship with PFAS is, is an important exercise. Um, doing that work um, in anticipation of litigation is, is probably a, a sound way to approach it because the Litigation around these PFAS as the regulatory regime has trailed, litigation is where it's at. People are suing one another for responsibility for cleanup or responsibility for contamination or responsibility for making it and selling it and not disclosing certain risks. So there's really just so much um, that I call it, you know, make sure your head is out of the sand, your eyes are up and you're looking around and, and, and you talk to, in, in some cases, we've helped companies track down employees who, who were on site in the 90s and, um, mm-hmm. and might have overseen certain activities or recall a, a, a spill or a fire or an event, which at the time maybe wasn't something that, that was documented in any particularly detailed way around the foam. Uh, because that certainly wasn't the focus back then. The other thing I'll say to your listeners is, you know, EPA's PFAS roadmap is a mm-hmm. is a great tool. It's it's got you know a laundry list of everything that's going to happen over the next two years. Everyone's watching the proposed rule to list PFOA and PFOS, which are only two, as you know, Lynn, of over six hundred mm-hmm. of these chemicals as circular hazardous substances. That is going to be a huge development, and certainly something that's been talked about for a good five, six years that will, if finalized, uh, perhaps result in many Superfund sites being looked at again, reopened, um, and EPA having authorities to do cleanups that they may not have today. And the final thing that that folks should be watching is, is the multi-district litigation in South Carolina. Uh, the foam cases are being consolidated there uh, there's over 1,300 of them right now, and wow. they're in full-blown discovery um, around the science, and there'll be a couple of three cases or so that will kind of lead that pack that will go all the way to full trial. And based on the findings of of that uh, trial in terms of responsibilities and liabilities, 
then those legal findings can be carried over to the the other cases in in the the district litigation. So that's uh-huh. that's something to watch. And I'm sure your your website probably has much more information on the foam cases and the status of the multi-district litigation. Yes, there's information on on our website. There's also um, what I call a, a piece on, you know, uh, getting your relationship right with PFAS. Mm-hmm. And of course, just Google PFOA, PFOS, and you'll land on lots of resources, including some from, from your firm, Lynn. You have great resources mm-hmm. out there as well. So plenty to get smart on. And then I would say, you know, where your legal counsel can help is in the you know, the deployment of what you want to do at your company and and making sure you're thinking about the different, as I said, there's so much litigation here that, you know, creation of records and documents, you really need to think about how those could be used in the future, not to say you shouldn't do it. In fact, I'm saying you should do it, (laughs) Right. but you should do it in in full awareness that someone may uh, request those documents in the future and, and think about that as you entertain that, that step. Yep. No, there are so many moving parts with uh, PFAS and the EPA's execution of the the PFAS roadmap that you were you were engaged in uh, in when you were AA, Alex. I mean, it is a fine piece of work and gives a lot of people a heads up on where they should be prioritizing actions because being situationally aware is a function of where you are at in the food chain, as it were. Well, and it's hard, it's hard to do, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's, I, I, I feel for, you know, our folks who are out there trying to make their product or carry on their business operations and, you know, to take, you know, 10 minutes every morning and, and glean the, the DC news for PFOA and PFOS and what EPA or the Department of Defense or some other um, agency is doing is is time consuming. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people like you and I can do, Lynn. I mean, we do, we actually do get up and and read all that stuff first thing in the morning. <laughs> Sadly, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, our business is to track those developments. And so I think we mm-hmm. can be helpful to people who, Indeed. Um, who just need the quick what's happening pulse mm-hmm. check. Well, as we record this podcast, Alex, you know, we're, we're at the beginning of, you know, serious concern with and focus on the midterm election and, and the outcome. And there's been a lot of talk about a possible flip in Congress uh, this coming November, although, you know, who knows? It, it's kind of a long way off, and yet it isn't. You know, if Republicans were to take control of the House, for example, what changes would you expect to see regarding EPA chemical management programs and, and any oversight? Right. So if there's a shift in uh, the power dynamic in, in Congress, for example, if Republicans take the House, boy, there are going to be so many issues on the top of their list. You know, I do have mm-hmm. to wonder whether oversight of TSCA, you know, how high that will kind of bubble, notwithstanding there are committees where Tosca is their jurisdiction. And so they, I would expect, you know, maybe more, as you said, oversight to find out kind of what's going on, you know, where, where are the risk management rules? How are things going with the next 20? What's going on with the manufacturer requested risk evaluations? I, uh-huh. I also expect questions about the resources, you know, what, What's the status of hiring? Some of these policy questions, I think, could could be the subject of some questions. As you know, Lynn, a lot of this is really down in the details, and it it doesn't make for 
kind of easy headlines or even easy opening statements by members of Congress, you know, around chemical regulation and a long line of questioning around personal protective equipment is going to seem really, really um, in the minutia. What I do think we would see, though, is maybe more letters to EPA asking for information, uh, briefings, may not see hearings per se, but I do think, you know, oversight in the other ways that Congress has, you know, to inquire of EPA, to ask for briefings. I mean, I can tell you from being in EPA, when you're asked to go up and do a briefing for the staff, you know, you prepare as much for that as you do to give, you know, testimony uh, in front sure. of, in front of the committee because frankly those those smaller briefings of the staff are where you can get into the details and um, some of the follow-ups can be really really intensive in terms of producing I mean we had to produce hiring charts and job descriptions when there was concern that that we weren't hiring quickly enough by uh, the Democrats when I when I was at EPA and they wanted to know if the Trump administration was truly prioritizing hiring in OCSPP. And you know, we had to go back and share, yes, indeed we are, and here's the hiring plan, and and you know, here are the people we've brought in, and here are our numbers. So so I do think that there will continue to be those deep dives. And you know, the next round of budget, um, I, if it's a Republican House, probably not going to see a a big budget boost to EPA. So I, I do think how EPA can work under the resources it has is going to be the the, the big question. Well, you you raise a, a lot of good points, Alex. And one of the areas that we've been kind of just kicking the tires on and thinking about is that with all of this emphasis on resources, and Dr. Friedhoff has made it abundantly clear at every opportunity when she's invited to speak before Congress and in other venues, you know, that She's lacking resources, and lacking resources means EPA is missing deadlines. You'd mentioned it earlier. Uh, you know, the, it, it, some of the changes in policies have resulted in fully developed risk evaluations being pulled back and reviewed, and deadlines are, are being missed. That that almost inevitably means that the failure to meet a deadline could result in a in a lawsuit. And you know, those lawsuits tend to focus on failures and hence puts EPA and OCSPP in kind of a bad light. Do you see that as ultimately helpful, hurtful, or just inevitable? It just is what it is. You know, yeah, I, I deadline lawsuits, you know, I when I used to sit outside the agency, I'd, I'd view it as, as pretty newsy to say, oh my goodness, you know, there's been a suit, EPA's missed a deadline. Um, and as you know, Lynn, we we tried very hard when I was at EPA to not miss any deadlines, to sort of avoid that kind of deadline lawsuit distraction. Yep. You did a so great job, Alex. Yeah, we didn't miss any. We re- Well, we missed them, but not within enough time that the lawsuit would have, have made right. <laughs> much progress. So deadline lawsuits may come. I uh, The question is who they'll come from. You know, I think that the NGOs right now are are you know all relatively aligned with with Dr. Friedhoff and her office's work, so they're unlikely to sue and put EPA under that deadline pressure. And then the question is, you know, it does does the regulated community benefit from the deadline lawsuit from from pushing EPA to more quickly complete, say, a proposed risk management rule around a chemical that's very important to them? So it there may be this. Um, you know, you go first kind of moment uh, with deadline mm-hmm. suits. Um, but if we get some 
I think it will be around, you know, where are those risk management rules? We, we do know there was a petition um, in the last administration from the regulated um, sector uh, that sought for a rule on risk management rules. You know, they wanted to know what was going to be in them. And, you know, pretty soon more and more inquiring minds will want to know. The only risk management rule that is in the queue is is asbestos phase one. It's been at OMB mm-hmm. since December. We should see it soon. But so again, I, I think to your point, they are part of the process. I'm, I'm not confident it's clear who would necessarily bring that deadline suit. I don't think they help or hurt. They're just part of the process. And, and EPA will always sort of agree to a deadline that it believes it can meet since it's a court obligation. So ultimately, the deadline suit might get EPA on a tighter schedule, uh, mm-hmm. but it will be a schedule that the agency believes it can achieve. And so it's probably still going to be a schedule that's at least you know a year or two away from where we are today. Agree. Let's pivot and talk a little bit about the Office of Pesticide Programs, a hugely important area of EPA's work. I know you focused an awful lot on that when you were assistant administrator. What issues are you monitoring now? There's just a lot going on with endangered species, pollinators, PREA-5. Um, what are you watching for? My goodness, there's there's so much. So, of course, the registration uh, review process, the 15-year mm-hmm. re-registration, that's another big, big workload and uh, some of the more challenging uh, pesticides were later in the queue. So certainly watching as EPA continues that process of re-registration. But in terms of you know really interesting policy issues, certainly the Endangered Species Act pesticide interface uh, remains front and center with Deputy Assistant Administrator Jake Lee, who's an expert in this area, leading those efforts with Dr. Friedhoff. Um, the agency you know, under the last administration because of the Farm Bill direction did develop, you know, several new policies around how the pesticide assumptions should be made for ESA policies. It involved Fish and Wildlife and and, and NOAA and, you know, lots of federal agencies, USDA. Uh, it was led by EPA. It involved CEQ. I mean, there really was, I think, you know, some pretty great collaboration across the the agencies that are part of this process. But as you know, Lynn, EPA has announced a new policy that for new active ingredients, the ESA consultation process, if it's needed because of a predicted effect on endangered species, is going to happen at the time of registration and in that early process. And and EPA has acknowledged that is going to slow new active ingredients getting to the Mm -hmm. marketplace. So there'll be less litigation, and that certainly is a positive change. But the, the timing of those new active ingredients, um, you know, seeing them slowed down, getting to market um, is, is something that I, I think we're all watching. And then, of course, PREA-5, you know, we have until October 23 for, for PREA-5, but when I arrived at EPA, PREA-4 was just coming across the finish line in, in, mm-hmm. in March of 2019. It, it, mm-hmm. There was, there was it, so much excitement because PREA is perhaps in many ways, the the lifeblood of resources that we don't see as much on the TOSCA side, although, as you know, TOSCA is supposed to work similarly with, with fees and funding, but it's much more mature on the pesticide mm-hmm. side. And uh, each PREA 
comes up with new categories for fees, uh, new actions that EPA can take, new timings for pesticide actions to happen. And, and what I always enjoyed seeing was just the diverse support base around PREA from the farm worker justice groups who were ensuring that there was money in PREA for worker protection initiatives to the participation of the growers, um, the household disinfectant makers, the commercial agriculture groups, the, the, the companies that develop new active ingredients. I mean, it was just sort of a, a we talked about, you know, being in the tent before this is the PREA tent is is very large and um, surprisingly collegial. And so it's it's great to see. And and I'm watching PREA 5 for sure. Well, you know, during your tenure as assistant administrator, it was truly an all hands on deck moment to ensure that there were disinfectants made available to address the impact of COVID-19. And, you know, our, our listeners need to be aware that th- this hit you front and center, Alex, because of your tenure as AA and the onset of, you know, working remotely and transitioning to a very different work environment. So I think the agency got huge marks for their success in scrambling the jets and being able to redeploy resources to get these disinfectants um, available you know, in your view, looking back, are there lessons learned from that experience that are important to remember and perhaps replicate in other contexts? And are there longer-term implications for the program that was created as a consequence of the pandemic? Well, thank you, Lynn. I know um, as we're doing this virtually um, through your virtual studio, we're still feeling the reverberations of of, of the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak. And there are so many long-term implications. I mean, I would say one thing was the nimbleness of the agency. When when mm-hmm. the virus started hitting the news in January, February of 2020, uh, EPA's pesticide office had in place this emerging viral pathogen policy that was ready to go, which which essentially said, if a product is strong enough to kill a virus uh, that is more persistent than a human coronavirus, you know, more hardy than a human coronavirus, mm-hmm. that product we can presume will be effective against um, SARS-CoV-2, even though we knew very little about it. Mm-hmm. And the staff made very quickly to create what was then uh, and still known as List N. And so many products were added and the staff really was just so dynamic and and quick, and they they had a plan because of this emerging viral pathogen policy. It's the first time it was ever used. So certainly, you know, looking at that policy to see if it needs any tweaks to be ready for whatever the next virus is, mm-hmm. uh, and there will be one, whether it's human or animal, or um, you know, being ready, having the policies in place that everyone's comfortable with, so that you can just go when you need to go is so important. Um, I will say an area that we learned was just difficult to deal with uh, was once we were sort of in for a longer experience with the virus was the number of innovative companies coming forward who had never interacted with EPA before. Many of them were crossover from the hospital space or um, other types of industries where they had a technology that they believed could be very helpful for addressing SARS-CoV-2 in the air or on surfaces. 
And uh, and even in in paints and coatings, that was a, a big area, as you remember. Could we coat? Oh, sure could do. we coat everything? You know, um, the banisters in in metro stations. You know, could they be coated with an antiviral product? Well, knowing what it would take to prove the product was effective and over how long, really just became um, quite a burden for the agency staff. Um, it, it was so, there were so many products coming through that were making so many claims about their capabilities and EPA has to review all of that. And there was no, although efforts were made to propose one, no um, protocol for doing the testing so that everyone coming in was on a level playing field. So you were just getting, you know, a, a wide variety of scientific studies and methods and claims and, and it became um, pretty difficult. As you know, a, a couple of novel products were authorized um, under an mm-hmm. emergency basis. And those uh, emergency registrations were, were later pulled back by, by the, the Biden administration, realizing that they were no longer necessary as, as the virus began to taper down. But that's where I hope EPA, with any capacity it, it may have in, in the Office of Pesticide Programs is to, to look at um, being situated for those novel product reviews. And, and what would that mean? Do you, do you have a team available that can do it? Do you, do you pull people from other agencies? I mean, frankly, all of those things were, were done during the, the pandemic before I left, and I'm sure were continued to be done, you know, borrowing staff from other offices, from the Office of Research and Development, um, detailing people, but it 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 can make for a pretty chaotic work environment, and um, it would be nice to be nimble and not chaotic simultaneously. Well, from from our perspective on the other side of of the equation, EPA did just a superb job in scrambling those jets and devoting much needed resources to ensuring novel products and technologies were made available at a time when they were most needed. So congratulations on the success of that program, Alex. Aww, thank you. And and kudos to the staff that are still going. I mean, really, they're, they're still working on this because the companies that maybe didn't get through in the process in, in 2020, 2021, you know, are still hoping and believe in their products. And, and so mm-hmm. the questions haven't gone away. <laughs> Um, and so there's still a need for those protocols and methodologies and and sort of that level playing field um, to keep the innovative marketplace moving. So e- EPA uh, is still on duty for this this task. Absolutely. Well, one question I have, and it might reflect a, a lack of full awareness, but before you ascended to the position of assistant administrator in Washington, you were regional administrator in New England. And my sense is, although this may not be accurate, that you you did not have to address a ton of pesticide issues. So when you arrived at OCSPP and met with staff and learned about the complexity, diversity, and just, you know, breadth of the program, um, you know, what were your first impressions when you when you took over at the helm there? Well, I will say this, um, and I... I chatted about this with Dr. Friedhoff is when you go through confirmation for the AA role, um, mm-hmm. because of the jurisdiction of Senate Environment and Public Works, which has TOSCA, but not FIFRA, which is with the Senate Department of Ag or with the Senate Ag Committee, um, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the nominee gets a lot of questions about TOSCA. 
but doesn't get asked a whole ton of questions about what they will do with regard to the pesticide program. So I will say that that when I arrived at OCSPP, my my mental portfolio may have been skewed towards Tosca. <laughs> and what made sure. me, um, what surprised me per se, is that I, I realized that two thirds of the office staff are in the pesticide program. Um, and how different the pesticide program is from the TOSCA program in terms of diverse stakeholders, as I mentioned, with regard to PREA mm-hmm. and, and so many products and so much public dialogue around, do we need pesticides? Are we using them properly? Uh, what are the substitutions and alternatives? The, the conversation around sort of air quote chemical policy is is very very open and mature on the pesticide side as you know there's the the pesticide program dialogue committee the PPDC mm-hmm. there's the tribal pesticide council there's the, the and and there's just so much conversation about do we need these chemicals how do we use them what do we want to see what's appropriate and and it was kind of exciting to be in a place where all of that was was happening and I would say in a in a systemized way, um, and to compare, you know, the Tosca program was still kind of getting its sea legs with a new statute and a new funding mechanism, and so the the it, it's almost like a, a big big sibling little sibling relationship, not only in size but in terms of experience. And so one of the things we tried to do was. Uh, bring the office together. And that, of course, as you know, is happening with the co-location downtown of the pesticide office moving from long time in Crystal City across the river to to the the headquarters building. So the programs will be co-located, but creating a lot of cross-disciplinary teams, uh, science teams where, where scientists in that are looking at eco risk and pesticides could collaborate with scientists looking at eco-risk in industrial chemicals, the same for human health risk, um, really sort of trying to create a more holistic unit of thought, not, not to affect necessarily outcomes, but to, to build capacity. And, and I know that that's still occurring and that's an exciting place. And the there were also a lot of details where people, uh, experts from the pesticide program detailed over to Tosca for a chunk of time um, to bring their knowledge from the more mature pesticide program to the newly statuted Tosca program. So mm-hmm. some 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 great opportunities in if if you love organizational management and you love trying to make big groups of people achieve and do wonderful things and be a part of that there's there's no better office than OCSPP because it is a it is it is just an absolute laboratory of collaboration and thought leadership and sharing and mission and really it went from as you know it was often thought of as kind of a sleepy office uh, to being a, a a pretty front and center office, absolutely. And you know, I'll, I'll make one one pitch for one of my pet aspirations in life that the toxics office, the industrial chemicals office, embrace more FACA, you know, uh, Federal Advisory Committee Act for a like PPDC for industrial chemicals, because I think the industrial chemical community is all the worse for not having 
a larger number of diverse stakeholder discussion groups to talk about the issues that EPA and the industrial chemical community are facing now as a consequence of, of Lautenberg. Talk is good. It's, it's not um, often helpful in, in resolving issues, and we have lots and lots of issues to resolve under Lautenberg. Alex, I just so enjoy chatting with you, and our listeners just love hearing your thoughts and hearing what you're up to. Do you have any last kind of parting thought or reflection you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, Lynn, first, thanks for the great time today. And um, my parting thoughts are, you know, to to stay to stay a, a supportive champion of of the program um, as as it evolves. You know, it it I, I it's coming up on six. Can you believe it? Tosca is going to be six in June. Yeah. Um, and you know, I I've made analogies to to Tosca and its age and the age of a, a six year old, which is around a, a, a first grader. You know, fair, fairly fairly uh, mature. We no longer have a, um, a a toddler, so to speak. The statute's really evolved, and it's full of great mm-hmm. promise. So, um, you know, I uh, reflection for your listeners is um, there's there's so much to come. Just like a, a six year old, <laughs> um, you don't really know <laughs> what they're going to great promise. <laughs> yeah, you don't know what they're going to become and how they're going to to focus their time and effort. There's so much going on in this program. It's so critically important. And so I, I encourage your listeners to, to stay, as I said, supportive, sideline champions of the staff. They're, they're working hard. The political leadership is working hard. And, um, and, and yet also to, to stay engaged in the policy dialogue because these are big, big important questions as we go forward in, in our country's management of chemicals. And it, it's an important conversation to, to be a part of. Indeed. Well, brilliant, Alex. Thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. We just are very, very grateful that you are able to you know, share your thoughts and spend some time with us. Thanks again. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks again to Alex Dunn for speaking with me today about life in the fast lane as a successful partner at Baker Botts, her transition back into the private practice of law, and what EPA's toxics policies have changed since leaving EPA as assistant administrator 14 months ago. All Things Chemicals produced by Jackson Beerfeld and Beerfeld Audio LLC. We will be back again soon to further inform and entertain you about All Things Chemical. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this BakerBots podcast. For more information on BakerBots practices, please visit us at bakerbots.com. For over 180 years, through 13 offices in nine countries, BakerBots has the experience, knowledge, and people to solve our clients' most significant legal issues. This presentation is provided by BakerBots LLP for educational and informational purposes only. It is not legal advice. Under the rules of certain jurisdictions, this communication may constitute attorney advertising.